Finally, I chatted with Dr. Fonseca for his overall reaction to the survey, beginning with the issue of pre-transplant induction. RVD is being used quite a bit in the community. I think this is arguably one of the best regimens for induction, but I was surprised how quickly that took. But the Velkit as well to the CyberD combination actually seems to be taking on as well. I was a bit more surprised with the RD, but maybe that's not as a surprise now thinking about the results that were published that shows that the three-year survival rate with this followed by transplant was 92%, which is actually quite respectable. So it's kind of interesting because it's gone two ways. On the one hand is the combinations, the RVD, the CyberD. On the other hand, people saying, you know, RD seems just as good and why don't we do that? You know, it's very interesting. My first thought was that probably this is a reflection of enhanced educational activities. Because again, you know, RVD is not a regimen that the average oncologist is going to just come across easily on publications. In fact, this is not out there in many of the mainstream journals yet. The paper was just published in Blood. Yes. And I think it's the presentations, you know, people going around and, you know, participating in some of the CME courses. It's been often said, of course, the big delay there is in implementation of adequate therapy. So, If we said RVD is, which I think anyone could take a very reasonable posture and say RVD should be the regimen of choice, this is actually quite positive. It means that people are listening to the message. Actually, we don't use this at our institution, the RVD, a lot. But again, I would say this is a perfectly reasonable upfront option for patients. But you are using triple therapy. Mostly we have been using the CyberD for no other reason than just institutional experience and comfort with the combination. Right. Another thing that we saw here... Again, I think it's a change. We first started looking at this. We found there was a solid 20, maybe even 25% of people who were not using cytogenetics and metaphase and trying to characterize patients by risk status. And although there's still, you know, maybe 15% of docs who aren't, it's less. Yes. I was pleasantly surprised with that, obviously, because that's very close to my heart and what I have done. You know, part of the message that we have sent out there is that I mean, this can help you in different ways. It can help you, obviously, in trying to maybe tailor a little bit your therapy, probably be more aggressive. But the other part that is actually crucial is that more and more we talk about myeloma being, quote-unquote, a chronic disease. But when you look at the high-risk patients, that's really not yet a reality. So it does change a little bit the hue of how you talk about the disease to a patient who has high-risk disease as opposed to your more favorable profile patient. Now, if one just looks at the data right now, however, the, again, the results with RD three years are actually quite good. So I would say for the standard risk, any one of those options would seem attractive. Then I would say, well, you know, what about something more intense like RVD for that group of patients? Well, it's not so clear, you know, how much the triplet will add over RD or versus CyberD for the standard risk patient. I probably would have a greater appetite for that in the high risk patients. But you could make the argument, well, let's just treat everyone with RVD. But, you know, it is a regimen that involves the three most active drugs. Could you at least theoretically be better off by saving the R for later? You know, who knows? If you look at the evolution clinical trials, CyberD looks as good as RVD. So for the standard risk patient, I would probably stick more with the more conventional regimens. And I noticed that in the transplant eligible high-risk situation, the message about bortezomib seems to have gotten out pretty well seems like everybody is recommending it, and other than the people who use RVD, which is, you know, about half the people, it's, you know, some variation of bortezomib and without lenalidomide usually. Yeah, it's quite interesting, and I think that's reasonable. There's all sorts of caveats and limitations to the data still because some of the series are small. The duration of follow-up is limited in some of them, but the message is pretty clear. Until we know better 
And also because of the rapidity of the disease control, it would seem reasonable to use a ortezomib-containing combination for frontline therapy for the high-risk patients, which is really consistent with what we have said in our guidelines, the Mayo guidelines of MSMART. Again, I see a change, you know, in terms of the last couple of years, in terms of oncologists, you know, picking up that message as well. Sure. What about the transplant ineligible patient? There we're seeing, you know, RD, MPT, and MPV as the three main players in both groups. Yeah. What's your approach and what do you think about these numbers? You know, it's kind of interesting how five years ago people were saying, well, you know, Melflan sort of is going to be relegated to second line treatment. And I sort of defended it at the time. And I said, I think it's still here. But in fact, the data with RD is very, very attractive for the elderly. And more so because one is we're using the lower doses and two is you can drop the doses further so that the whole issue of DEX in the elderly, it's better tolerated. It's not to say that it doesn't need to be managed with caution. Of course, one needs to be careful for toxicity. But we've used quite a bit of RD for the elderly. I think that's well tolerated. MPT or MPV, I think they're both very reasonable and excellent combinations. We've used quite a bit of those in the off-study setting. The one caveat with the T, of course, is that one needs to be mindful about cytopenias, which are not at the forefront of folks when they think about prescribing thalidomide. But you put it with melflan and the elderly, and it does matter there. And with the V, obviously, the usual caveats about just being very careful with regards to peripheral neuropathy. I thought more people would be using NPR, and it's actually not a very high number. And it probably reflects that people still want to get more experience with that regimen. And the myelosuppression has been more pronounced in that setting. And people, are, I guess, are still want to understand better what the doses might be. So in a way, it comes as no surprise that the NPR is not amongst the top three, but rather the MPT and the MPV when it comes to melphalan. And of course, there's an ongoing randomized phase three study that is comparing MPT to MPR. This is a ECOG study, E1A06. So that would shed some light at some point in the future. I think people were more impressed with the concept of longer duration of therapy as opposed to the more intense triplet. And that is a that is a very clear theme that seems to be coming from all the studies that apparently longer duration of therapy is actually beneficial. Again, the skeptics would say, well, we have to wait. We have to see whether the PFS converts into overall survival. But I would be probably thinking that as the data comes out, it will matter that patients are treated for longer. Yeah, that Palumbo presentation, it looked like the bump, as you say, was, I mean, it looked at MP, MPR, and then PRR, you know, with continued R. It looked like, as you say, kind of the big bump was coming when you added the R there in maintenance as opposed to adding it in induction. Was that your take? You know, quite frankly, and having discussed this beforehand with Antonio, I think he's going to make another presentation at the EHA meeting. He fell short a little bit in explaining why the study was being presented and what were the issues, because the follow-up duration is really short. It was nine months median duration of follow-up. So it's very hard to compare the first part of the treatment. It's really because of the huge difference that occurs once the treatment is stopped in NPR as opposed to NPR-R. So there was a lot of deviation into the thought of, well, look at that NPR versus MP doesn't look that different, and it's right. I mean, it might change over time, but at the beginning, it doesn't look that different. But what is very clear is that if patients stayed on therapy, then they appear to be doing better. And the reason this became so important is because long-term LAN actually is well-tolerated. So it's easier to propose that as opposed to a more intensive or toxic type treatment. What about the transplant ineligible patient at high risk? Again, you see bortezomib by almost everyone, not that much lenalidomide, and then other variations with an MPV, RVD, VD, seeming to be the big players there. 
What's your approach and what do you think about these numbers? You know, for me, it was a bit surprising. And this was one of the discrepancies that I noticed. I was going over the data yesterday, a number of people that are treated with RVD as primary therapy. So I'm assuming, of course, that's what the patients are receiving. And then I don't know if we have that detail, but whether they stop or they keep on going with LEN later on. But let's just assume that patients are treated with RVD in such a way that they get a fixed number of cycles, six or eight cycles. You know, we don't know for sure, but there's been this perception that you have to be doing something that is durable. For instance, that comes from the early days of Thaldex, that if you only did Thaldex and you stopped and the patients relapsed from RevDex, RevDex has a great ability to control the disease, but you have to keep on going with it. Or if not, you have to do the transplant. So we've always sort of thought that something needs to be done to consolidate the gains. And in this case, I think it's reflected by MPB, that 50% with the clinical investigators, which is quite lower, of course, in the community. But my sense is if these patients are treated, they probably would be at high risk of early recurrence. Now, of course, that has not been tested. And that's one of the important questions that should be addressed now in some of the future clinical trials is whether you actually truly gain something by adding melflon to that combination. But I think until we know better, I probably would go with MPB as opposed to RVD for the high-risk elderly. Another issue that we asked about related to bortezomib neuropathy, you mentioned that, and we asked people, what schedule of bortezomib do you usually utilize if you're using, for example, a doublet in a patient who doesn't have neuropathy? Mm-hmm. And it was kind of interesting that you see kind of a heterogeneity there and that, you know, about a third of investigators use the standard twice weekly, maybe 20% use once weekly, and then almost half use both weekly and twice weekly. Mm-hmm. In the docs in practice, kind of a similar, not exactly the same, but similar use of both schedules. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I have been talking more and more when we talk to folks in the community about using the weekly schedule. And again, this is something that is just coming out. There's not a lot of publications out there, but we do have a paper that compares the CyberD weekly versus the twice weekly, and responses seem to be similar, but the rate of discontinuation because of peripheral neuropathy is less. And, and there were other studies like that presented at the ASH meeting. So my prediction would be that more and more people will move to the weekly schedule. At our institution, we actually agreed that we would do that. And, you know, the nurses were happy and the patients were happy. You're saying, just come here once a week. We actually don't do interruptions. So we tell the patients, for instance, we're going to treat you for 16 weeks of CyberD once a week and then move to transplant. And it just makes it so much simpler. I think it's well tolerated, more convenient. And if the data holds, we'll be less toxic. Now, we also have data looking at bisphosphonates, which is interesting in that there's, again, somewhat of a heterogeneity, not so much the difference between investigators and docs in practice, but just in terms of what people are doing. And, you know, we ask people in patients with lytic bone disease and advanced disease, what's the duration that they use? And most commonly, it's 24 months, but, you know, 12, 14%, 12 months, and a substantial number use it indefinitely. How did you answer that? And what do you think about these answers? You know, I was surprised. I thought actually most people were considering in one way or another limitation in the duration of the bisphosphonates. In myeloma, it's very clear that myeloma bone disease occurs in proximity to plasma cells. And if you have someone who's in a CR, for instance, I would really have a hard time putting them on indefinite bisphosphonate. And even if they have, you know, bone disease and they have a CR, maybe I'd go more towards the lower end of the treatment. There's been a lot of discussion about the osteonecrosis, and while we don't know in great detail how it happens and the mechanisms, 
one of the things that appears to come out as a, as a recurrent theme is that duration of therapy does matter. So that for the actual benefit you're getting, I'd be more inclined to be more cautious with the use of bisphosphonates. I'm curious what you think about the data we found on serum-free light chain assays and particularly how it's used. Well, you know, we have embraced this because I think it's past the point where there was initial skepticism. And I was sort of satisfied seeing that the clinical investigators are using this routinely. One could argue that in patients where you have a very large protein, you don't need to do this. But the counter argument to that is that this truly represents the free light chain. So it does cover your basis as far as having your main protein plus the light chain. And, you know, the old-fashioned Ben's Jones escape, when a patient would go for an intact immunoglobulin to the light chain only, would be covered with this. But even in the community, too, I think that's quite a reasonable number. I used to ask this question around before when I lecture, you know, how many of you are using free light chain? Now it seems like the question is almost always. Although if you look specifically in terms of general use of free light change, 93% of investigators, 84% of oncologists. But if you look at MGUS, 89% in investigators versus 49%, and particularly amyloidosis, where it's 93% use in investigators versus 58% in community docs. Any thoughts? Yes, that's the biggest gap there. You know, for amyloidosis, that's a substrate that produces the amyloid. So when we see our patients and when we monitor them, the real goal is to try to bring the free light chain down to the normal range. So I think that's an area where the information could be deployed a little bit better. You know, partly is that, yes, myeloma is rare enough, but then amyloid is even less common so that people probably are less attuned to how the disease should be managed. Let me use another example in amyloidosis. People will often say, well, you know, the bone marrow had only 5% plasma cells, so it was normal. And everyone would sort of say, no, that's not normal. It may be those 5% that are producing the monoclonal protein or use the free light chain. So I think that that'd be number one, an opportunity for further education. In the MGOS as well, too, I think it does help us quite a bit. There's a good model now that predicts your progression to myeloma based on the size of the protein, the presence of an abnormal free light chain ratio or the IgG subtype, which has been published. And it does help refine what you tell patients. So if someone has all of those on the favorable side, I guess you could make a bit more emphasis on the rather benign nature of what they have. So that'd be another area where people could do a better job using the free light chain. In MGOS, you know, it needs to be done only once at the time of diagnosis. You could repeat it, of course, but strictly speaking, just once. But in amyloidosis, that would probably be the best tool for monitoring your response, certainly more so than the M-spike, that the M-spike may still come down to normal and you still may have an elevated free light chain. 